Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, longtime Fresh Air producer, Amy Sala. I was so excited. I was 12. Did you have your beetle? Most girls have their one beetle. Oh my God. And this is so... I'm going to be honest. Did I tell you? No. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Okay. I love Durango. It's really embarrassing. No, I think... But here's the... I think... I think I thought he looked Jewish. But after a year and I was 13 and the hormones kicked in and I listened to more of their stuff, I was totally a John girl. Welcome back to Fun to Know. I'm Dan Buskirk. On today's show, a recent interview with Amy Sallett, now celebrating her 30th year as a producer on the much-beloved national public radio staple Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Amy was instrumental in helping me land my first paying gig in radio back in the late 80s when I worked as a researcher for the show, back when that actually involved going down to the Philadelphia Free Library and finding old newspaper articles by winding through rolls of celluloid microfilm. Back then, there was an unofficial wish list of names we hoped would someday sit down for an interview with Terry, but in the 25 years that have passed, just about everybody on that list has been on the show. Amy's deep musical knowledge has long informed the show, although... Her beat these days is current affairs. Amy discusses the logistics of booking unique guests to discuss the affairs of the day, but also talks about growing up a young Jewish Beatles fan in Lubbock, Texas, her thoughts on the changing spirit of Austin's South by Southwest Festival, the current state of the music industry, and some of Fresh Air's most memorable guests. Amy is truly modest about her experience, and she took some conjoling to get on mic, but she made for some of the most wonderful, relaxed conversation we've had on the show yet. That's out over now as I begin plying Amy to tell us about her Texas roots. What do you need? Do you want water? Well, no, I think I'm good. I think yeah. I have all the fluids we, I uh, need. Um, I, uh, I what I usually what I kind of found out that was better to do like is to to really write out like a nice like uh, written introduction where I really like lay it on thick yeah. all the great things about you. And, like, yes, there's so many. You know. It's gonna be long. It might take up the whole show. <laughs> but um, your your origin story has always been uh, interesting to me. Oh, that yeah, you, you seem weird. like such the uh, city sophisticate right. east coast uh, east coast yeah. city sophisticate but you 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 grew up in in lubbock texas well it's, it's you know it's funny okay i was actually born in baltimore uh-huh. but we left when i was three so i don't remember it and that wasn't really a part of my childhood that i remember but um and and we moved to grand junction colorado in uh, 1955. This is with your father and mother? Yeah, my father, my mother, what and your, my your... sister. I have a sister who's three years older than me. And so it was 1955, and we're Jews from Baltimore. And <laughs> for some reason, that's never been real clear to me. We moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, which had around 14,000 people. And it's way off in the, you know, western part of Colorado. It's not near anything. 
Uh, the one thing is my mother's sister lived in Farmington, New Mexico. And uh, so it had something to do with that. And so... What did your father do? Well, he just like was a salesman. He never finished college. And when he moved out there, he got a job at Montgomery Ward. What was he like? I mean, did your parents have like a whole cultural interest that... No, I don't know why they moved there. I don't know. They had no. I don't know. I think to be near my mother's sister. Yeah. I don't. I don't. What, what kind of what kind of guy was he though? Your 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 father. Oh, let's not get into that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll answer. Okay. He. You really want to get into all this personal stuff? Well, I mean, like, I don't need to draw okay. tragedy or anything. He, but I mean, you no, you have this whole cultural interest. I, I thought it would right. be passed down okay. from your parents. Somewhere. So. Uh, my father was a sergeant in World War II. He was in uh, Italy and North Af- Africa. So he fought in the war. He saw action and everything? You know, he never, he loved talking about the war, but he never talked about any of the fighting, but uh, all the guys there and just like funny, odd stories. Uh, and that, I think, was the best time in his life. Wow. But... Um, he was he's odd he was an odd person and um so at one point in grand junction he opened a store he opened the father and son shop um and he had that for a while and i don't even know how many years uh but then he got he just didn't want to have to go sit in a store every day so he became a traveling salesman Mm -hmm. um and one, one funny thing um because you know, I knew, well, I knew we were Jewish and I was a little kid and we didn't do anything Jewish at home. There was no religion, no Passover, no Yom Kippur, no nothing. And, you know, there weren't any other Jews around. There weren't bagels, there were, you know, none of that. And so all I knew was I was Jewish. Nobody else was Jewish. So it was something I was, I would keep quiet. Like I didn't yeah. want people to know. But as an adult, once I was uh, talking to this woman who was a publicist for some little PBS independent film thing, and we were talking on the phone, and I said, we were the only Jews in Grand Junction, Colorado. And she's like, no, you weren't, because we were Jews in Grand Junction, Colorado. And so we were there at the same time, and she went and talked to her parents, and our parents at one point had been really good friends. Her father... Um, or parents, you know, opened the Jack and Jill shop. And my dad had the father and son shop. And they had agreed they wouldn't sell the same brands of boys' clothes because that's where they overlapped. And then apparently her dad broke the agreement and they stopped speaking to each other. <laughs> wow. But, and so then he was a traveling salesman. And so then in the early 60s, he had heard that Texas was the land of opportunity and the traveling salesman biz. And he took this new job and we moved to Lubbock, Texas when I was 11. And so, you know, I did sixth grade through high school there. Did, do you remember arriving in Texas and it being yes. different at all? Or Hated it. Always hated it. Hate, well, Lubbock. Lubbock is, I mean, love Austin. Austin's fun. But Lubbock, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's... It's horrible. It's it's. Con- I didn't know it from Buddy Holly being there. Yeah, so I imagine well, you know, like everybody just adores Buddy Holly, and there's Buddy Holly Day once a it week. It wasn't or, when I lived there. He there was nothing. 
there was no I mean now there's a statue there's a Buddy Holly Park like but then there was just nothing and um what's the business of the town uh well there's like cotton and soybeans it's farming Mm. farming um it's it's just like there's nothing near there it's like 300 miles from Dallas like there's no cities it's like a suburb with no city you know it's just like those tracked houses and mall you know were the, there was what, one mall were the kids different there was it yeah it was like cheerleaders with big you know sprayed blonde hair and I mean I just like totally didn't belong there so I had one friend Carol yeah. Barish she, she, she was Jewish so there were three, no, four Jews my age in, like in, in my class that were my age, there were four in the whole town. So you were- I don't know, this whole Jewish thing, because I was so out of place, like I wasn't brought up Jewish at all, but because, you know, I was the only Jew, it just became this big identifying thing, even though I don't, I still don't even really know much about it. But I mean, I could see where it would be something almost like a label to lay on, like, the feeling of alienation kind of yeah yeah totally like I felt really swarthy and (laughs) you know like dark and yeah you know it it, yeah it's funny and so so you know I ended up on the east coast and then I ended up in Philadelphia just because I got a job here Uh I got a job at WXPN radio station but my father was born in Philadelphia and lived here till he was five and then a friend of mine who's been doing a lot of genealogy lately she did some on my family and she found like my father's parents when they applied for citizenship in 1908 they they lived like she had the address and it's Mm -hmm. on the this block in the 500 block of Delancey where one of my best friends lives and I'm on that block all the time and they lived there in 1908 so that was really funny so what what year what years were you in uh, in Lubbock? Um, sixty three, we moved there, and then you know my parents stayed there. My father died there in two thousand, but I graduated high school in nineteen seventy, and then I was gone. But uh, you, but I would go back to visit. You you were a, a budding music fan in those years, right? So that started um, before I moved there. I just would listen to the radio. I love those songs. I was thinking about this. Um, I don't even know if you know these songs, but like, I Will Follow Him, sure. Little, Peggy, Little March. Peggy March. Like, I think about the messages in some of those songs and... Um, Oh, you remember Johnny Be Angry by Joni Summer? Summer? Yeah, I don't. I kind of remember. To talk about the messages Johnny Be Angry, Johnny Get Mad, give me the biggest lecture I've ever had. (laughs) Yeah. I'll be, you'll be a bad boy. I mean, I kind of remember that. That might have been a little before, but I will follow him, Little Peggy March. There was another one that was just. So bad, I was going to mention, but I can't remember now. <laughs> well, that Blue was like the girl, velvet, you know, sort of the uh, pre-Beatles, mm. sort of uh, yeah, kind of the teeny bopper era. There, that was before, you know, and 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 so, um, but I listened to the radio a lot. I just liked music. Your older sister liked music too. She wasn't. She had some Elvis records, but it wasn't a big thing for her. But somehow, 
I read about the Beatles. This was before they were on the Ed Sullivan show. I saw this picture where those stupid hairdos and we're like, wow, you know, with the suits. And so it, there was just a lot of hype around them and that first song. Um, wait, the first song was, it wasn't I Want to, it was I Want to Hold Your Hand. That was the first one. And so then I watched them on Ed Sullivan and I was already in love and, you know, like I was so excited. I was 12. Did you have your Beatle? Don't don't most girls have their one Beatle? Oh my God. And this is so, I'm going to be honest. Did I tell you? No. Okay. I'm I'm going to be honest. It's Murray the K, isn't it? No. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Okay. I love Durango. What's wrong with Love and Ringo? It's really, it's really embarrassing. No, I think. But here's the. I think. I think I thought he looked Jewish. <laughs> so weird. But after a year, and I was thirteen, and the hormones kicked in, and I'd listened to more of their stuff, I was totally a John girl. Yeah, I don't think Ringo's a bad choice. I was never a Paul or a George girl, but you know, once I really got into the music. And and I was always so embarrassed about that that I loved Ringo first, but when I saw Hard Day's Night again, more recently, I was like, oh, Ringo was pretty cute. Oh, I, yeah. I I'm a big Ringo. I, I could go on. You know, I have cocktail party lectures about Ringo that I could deliver. <laughs> but especially in Hard Day's Night, when I saw that as a kid, there's the whole scene with him uh, by the riverside playing yeah. with the kids that are playing hooky. This and I girl felt wasn't like, it this. Girl, Ringo would be nice to me. Like Ringo's like likes kids and he's <laughs> funny. You know, he was sort of the less intimidating of, of them like in some he was ways. He having a good time. Oh, looked yeah. like he was having a good time. Have you seen that Maisel's Brothers film uh, of them first arriving in in, uh, in in the United States? Well, I I mean I've seen that footage a lot where they come off the plane and the press conference. Yeah, I didn't realize so. that the Maisels were actually right in the limousine where they all got into. Uh-huh. So you see the Beatles' reaction to the first time they realize like something crazy has happened. Oh yeah, maybe th- I, I should watch that. I don't know if I've watched. Throughout it. that film, Ringo is never never stops moving. Like if he's uh-huh. standing in a room, like he's hitting out a beat in his yeah, head. Yeah, he and, does. Like, his drumming yeah yeah he's he's uh, he's kind of an actor you know he's almost like a silent movie actor type of guy maybe but yeah yeah, i love the beatles and uh so i was 12 when the beatles first came to the u.s and had their first album here and that's the perfect age for that and i was into it you know and then so you know and then i all the british invasion bands and this is something like i don't know where this came from so you know I'm in Lubbock and I don't remember talking to my friends about music like I don't know but I would go to the record store and order British imports wow of albums like I got introducing the Beatles I got the British import because somehow I knew it had different songs on it and I got a British import of a Gene Pitney album. Like, I, I don't know where that came from. So funny. And then this boyfriend in college sold my Beatles album. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> he's, Awful. He's, Ringo would have done that. <laughs> But yeah, that that is interesting. That you like. Well, to me, uh, you know, that's 
a little before I started the haunting the, the record stores of my own uh, right, right. place well, or whatever. But you had to really like be looking for like I'm very curious with the whole scene of like record stores. I Where know? did you buy your records? I think there was only one record store that, you would go to. Right. I mean, and there there weren't there were three TV channels. There were not radio stations. I mean, the whole media there just wasn't as much i mean it's it's ridiculous compared to what goes on now you know so that's why because all all i remember reading was 16 magazine mm-hmm. gloria stavers wasn't she uh, i don't know she was one of the writers and she was oh uh, i don't know <laughs> all the writers but i did in in 6th grade uh we had to write this final paper for our world geography class and I wrote, my paper was 100 pages long, and it was me traveling around the world with the Beatles, and I would cut out pictures, I did collages of me with the Beatles in all the different countries, but, you know, I covered all the stuff we're supposed to cover, like what river we crossed, and what product they export that we bought there, and, you know, like it was all very geographically correct. Wow. Do you still and, have this? Um, I don't know oh, where man. it is. I would, and I, you, you know, I got right an now. A, I got an A, but I... I'm very embarrassed um, to reveal that at the end, the way it ended in Africa with the Beatles being eaten by cannibals, really? which is very racist. And <laughs> I mean, I was twelve. I should have known better. But so, but um, so that whole British invasion thing, you know, the Brit like these. To Lubbock, you know, because it wasn't a big city, but we would get the group shows with like the third tier artists, you know, would come and each band would play like two songs. So, you know, we got Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, who I loved, and uh, Dave Clark Five, you know, we got Sandy Shaw instead of Dusty Springfield, you know. Not a bad trade. Not a bad trade. Yeah. And the, um, this was a little later, but one, I remember the left bank played because I got one of the guys to autograph this baby picture I had in my Where, where did bands play in Lubbock? The Civic Center. Uh, what were those shows like? Was what most, were they like? Were there mostly girls there? or what was? Oh, God. I'm supposed to remember? I don't know. Do you remember? I don't remember. You don't remember? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, probably, but I don't know. No, you know, guys were into that music. Like, in uh, junior high, guys started forming bands, you know, when they would play, like, venture stuff. Or, you know, that song um, that the Shadows did that became this, like, hip-hop. Apache. Apache. I remember the bands playing Apache, you know, when I was, like, in junior high. Like, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Did you ever? Did you ever think about playing music? Did you ever? Think I about always wanted to be like an electric guitar player, and at one point I had an electric guitar, but I just never did it. it didn't come together. Yeah, um, I just have to be a fan. Well, I mean, the, the great thing about being twelve years old when the Beatles hit is really taking that whole sort of cultural ride with them as well. Like I can't imagine. Uh, uh, to to see them really changing the the whole palette of pop right, music, right? As you're going through your own right. sort of changes, just is is sort of the mind blowing soundtrack. Yeah. And then, um, you know, 
then in high school, it was the psychedelic stuff and Neil Young and, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell and Cream and, you know, just like all that stuff. I mean, I didn't get really, you know, find out about really obscure things, you know, while I was in Lubbock. Supposedly, you could pick up Mexican radio stations there, but I, I never knew about that then. Yeah. Did you sense much of a sort of Mexican music scene around no. you at all? <laughs> <laughs> they were in East Lubbock. Oh, huh? well. It was very segregated. Very segregated, I imagine. I mean, the, uh, you know, Civil Rights Act passed while I lived there. Well. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago <laughs> in my, you know, history. So you finally left Lubbock and went to college. I went to college, yeah. I went to Hippie College at Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin. Oh, really? Yeah. Was that close to... Uh... Close to Illinois. Oh, it's close to Illinois. Like half, it, half of Beloit's in Illinois. I was thinking well, the University of Wisconsin's kind of a hippie... <sighs> yeah, it's just place. it was 1970. Everything was hippie. <laughs> <laughs> All colleges, right? Did you end up at the the campus radio station? In I college? did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Oh, that was fun. What were your What were your early shows like? It's so funny. Like a lot of the artists I would play, I still listen to now. Like, um, well, I would play. I I mean, like Flying Burrito Brothers and uh, uh, Joan Armitrading or like psychedelic Rolling Stone song, Some Grateful Dead. Um, I mean, I was never a deadhead, but I saw them in 72, well, which was, is late. I know, it's no, late. No, 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 but I mean, at but, that point, the whole idea of a deadhead <laughs> hadn't built up to... Uh, right, right. You know, but, something to spend your parents' trust fund on. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Trust fund. Um, and uh, what else would I play? I mean, it was all like... You know, I had pretty good taste, you know. Yeah. Um, what was the did, did bands come and play at the college and everything? Was it, did you... So, you know, my first year there, so I, it's like, it's a small town, you know, but there are a lot of people from Chicago and New York there, very sophisticated student body. And so it's 1970, and, uh, you know, we'd only been there like a month and a half or something, and it was homecoming, and uh, Mothers of Invention played. Do you remember that show? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was not specifics, but, you know, that was very exciting, <laughs> you know. I mean, because I was so happy to be out of Lubbock. Yeah. See, well, I know Leo Kotke played, but sometimes I think it was John Faye. They would get some of the Chicago blues guys would come up, and we would hitchhike down to Chicago for shows sometimes and for political protests because the war was going on. Yeah, well, what, 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 I mean, other than, than music, I mean, that was such a, 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 a tumultuous time in, in uh, culture, you know, the culture of the United States. I mean, yeah. what, what was, what was uh, your impressions of the whole sort of social scene of the campus and everything? 
what do people busy themselves with? What were, what were students uh, excited by? Well, not sports. I mean, everyone had their own. I mean, I was really, I was just, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. I have no kind of practical education whatsoever. And I was really just into the world of ideas and, you know, reading like the autobiography of Malcolm X and Siddhartha and, you know. Getting an education, you mean? Yeah, like kind of. I mean, I almost went to St. John's in Santa Fe, which is a great book. So, you know, it's just kind of. What? what You know, because after being in Texas for so long, and my parents, you know, really aren't intellectuals of any sort, you know, just to learn about ideas and stuff, was, that was kind of, I was very excited about that. Nothing practical. Yeah, I mean, did, were you thinking you're going to be an English teacher, or were you, were you projecting back then, ahead you at all? You just didn't, you weren't, you know, you, you didn't have to be practical. Yeah. You, you didn't think about things like that. <laughs> So you graduated with a degree? Comparative literature. Comparative literature. Well, wouldn't that be perfect for where you ended up? I mean, it sounds like you got you exactly think? the education you wanted. Well, um, I don't know. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, because you were asking about this before, like how I ended up in, you know, doing the work I do because... Uh, I was into music, and um, so after college, I had this boyfriend, the one that sold my album, and, um, you know, he had been involved with the college radio station, too, so we ended up living out in the country, and we were in Massachusetts, we were in Boston briefly, and then we were out in the country, and we were just riding our bikes around, and went to Worcester, and saw a sign that there was a community radio station there, so we went, and we talked to the people and just started doing shows What there. was the station? WCUW in Worcester. And it had started at Clark, but but this, you know, group of students and community people who, you know, were doing shows there, they re-licensed it as a community station. So um, it was in a basement at a dorm at Clark. Is it still there? Yeah, but it's not at Clark. They got a building later. Um, so what, but, was, what was the scene at the radio station? Oh, my station God. Like? It was great. It was... Um, there were really brilliant people there. And um, the music director, I, you know, he was like one of my uh, very important mentors, you know, because he just knew... Every, I mean, he played music with Henry Kaiser, you know, and just knew everything about... You know, a lot of stuff, you know, I learned about that I didn't know that much about, like the Stooges and even like Lou Reed and the Velvets and, you know, just like a lot of stuff. And um, so I started doing a show and you could just play anything, you know, so you could go from jazz to folk to rock to punk to, you know, I would go to the public library and get like yoga instruction records or there was actually this album like how to make colorful conversation and it was an instructional album and you know you could Paid just off tonight right i studied <laughs> it it's working um and it was total just free form like you could do these great segues and talk as much as you want and some of the people were just so interesting that did shows there it was it was really it was such a good group and um 
very free, but good. Not like I don't think it was self-indulgent. You know, I think you would have liked listening. And we all hung out together and we were in Worcester. So we'd go up to Boston to see shows and, you know, it's fun time. Wow. Did you did you do any interviewing of musicians? Oh, OK. So so um well for example this music director you know who i just said so many nice things about um so once i was like i had been at one point i left and moved to oregon and uh, i was studying environmental education and i went there one semester and then decided i didn't want to spend any more money and moved to worcester and you know continued working at the station oh and at one point we got a grant so a bunch of people were being paid so i had like a salary for a year wow but um so i just come back and the music director couldn't do a show so you know it's like i'll do it um neglecting to tell me per uba was showing up for a live interview (laughs) what year would this been uh 78 and you know david thomas is so cooperative (laughs) you know like i you know had listened to some of their songs but like i wasn't like super knowledgeable i didn't know what to ask them and he was being he was being very difficult so i don't remember the details except that it was awful (laughs) and then once so then there was this other guy um who worked there, who was very into really out jazz and very cool world music. And he would set up these concerts in this little church. And so, uh, like, the art ensemble guys, like, Joseph Jarman. Joseph Jarman. Joseph Jarman and Don Moyer had this album called Egwu Anwu, you know, where there's, like, big incense balls and these, like you know, bedazzled outfits, and they had done this performance in the church, and then, so I'm supposed to interview them live on the radio after, and, like, Don Moye was, like, falling. <laughs> he was, like, actually, like, falling asleep on the mic. <laughs> so I remember that one. Uh, but, <laughs> but I, but, you know, but then I got into this whole idea of uh, just how to work all the equipment. And I would just go in the production studio. I remember sometimes just stay there all night. And I just taught myself how to use all the equipment. And then I started, I would take a, a little tape recorder out and interview people for news things. There was a lot of anti-nuclear power stuff going on in the area at the time. And uh, I went to Washington. I think it was like the no nukes, you know, big demonstration was huge. And, you know, I think I had a press pass. And and so I really just taught myself how to do all this stuff because I was, you know, it started because I was into music. And then, so then I started applying for jobs and I got a job at WXPN. Oh. So what, what year was that? 1979. 79. In September. And that I was there five and a half years. That was interesting. We talked about, I'm sure, I don't know if you remember this, we've talked about this before, but I was a, uh, a high school kid at home uh, listening to WXPN, and I, 
I'm sure I probably still have tapes of Pat Smear on the air. Well, I think I might have only done that once. Really? I have I the. T- I, I know I heard that it once. Or, or Lee would just mention that I was sitting there, but I did do his show once. Yeah. But I would do the morning show mm-hmm. once a week. I think it was called the Alternative Alarm Clock. <laughs> so as- and the new music show. Yeah. I did directions in music. Uh, so I mean, XPN. I mean, it's a sort of a legendary era of community radio and freeform radio and yeah. uh, there's a lot of legends about the characters who are around that studio and the whole sort of uh, charged political atmosphere um what was your your experience at, at xpn that might have been before i was there because the reason they they hired people you know i was part of this wave where they they hired four people you know to actually work there and because the vegetable report had happened and they and it was a live call-in show and this was before i was there right but some guy was like telling this woman who had called in to like molest her son or something and then there were complaints and they did actually lose their license but they didn't but then they were allowed to just like immediately apply for a new one so they never went off the air but um they hired some actual staff at that point it seemed like that that i i i'd, I'd already heard it described as some sort of sexual content involving vegetables <laughs> oh that was it was just called the vegetable <laughs> but I, I i heard that really it seemed like that really sent a chill through the station and that yeah, was suddenly because, like they yeah. were in trouble big time yeah and it was stupid it wasn't worth it but um well, there were, you know, there was like Diaspar and... That was that? the electronic music show? It, it's prog rock. Diaspar's yeah. prog rock. And then there was the late night... Um, Blue Genesis? Well, Blue Genesis was jazz, but what was that? Because they had a lot of that, like, you know, the echoes, because John DiLiberto and Kim Haas were yeah, yeah. kind of running the music. And that was their taste, was all this prog rock and electronic-y stuff. It wasn't my taste. And the only rock show really was Lee Yesterday's Paris's Now Yesterday's. Music Today with Lee Paris and Steve Pross was there, too. Yeah, what was he? He point. went by different. Royd Kafka. Royd Kafka. That's how I know. And I was more of a rock person, but there was a very snobbish attitude against rock. Uh, it's interesting. I, I came to XPN later, you know, probably... 88 or 89 or so and I remember running across a copy of uh, No New Wave the mm-hmm. compilation that Brian Eno put together of the sort of post-punk New York scene with Mars and James Chance and the Contortions mm-hmm. and it was the, it was a, a collision of uh, the musical cliques of XPN because oh, all right. the Eno people uh, were drawn right. to this record because he was involved and then they are like this punk music is horrible, and then uh, yeah. and then right underneath would be somebody. It would be Roy or, or Lee Paris or whatever saying like, "You guys don't know what you're talking about." And there's this whole argument that goes all across the back of that so record. People actually wrote wrote it on the album. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. There was that whole. I mean, you know, we kind of skipped over all the punk bands in Boston. Well, you you, you were a, a witness to to that scene. <laughs> I was or? a witness. You know, I lived in Worcester, so I wasn't I wasn't part of the scene, but we would go up to the Rat all the time or to Cantones. And did you, did you dress punk when you went there? No, no, no. I, I've always been kind of a hippie. I pretty much 
look the same way I look now. That's interesting. When you see films of those old punk shows, you look in the audience, it's not everybody dressed like uh, John Lydon or, or anything. It really is a yeah. lot of... Some people you know, would. Bell, people in bell bottoms and things like yeah, that there yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, because, you know, the 70s punk really did kind of have the hippie values. Like in the 80s with the hardcore... I never, I never vibed with that whole scene, you know, but uh, I felt like the 70s punk kind of grew out of the sort of lefty political hippie ideas. It was much more of a, a, a loose idea of sort of do it yourself. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And iconoclasm, it wasn't... Yeah, like uh, not to not be like Foreigner or the band Boston or, you know, be the opposite of like all the bloated you know hair bands yeah. whatever it was but with the hardcore thing it seemed to get much more into a sort of costume and and uh, the music itself came almost as you know traditional and confined as bluegrass or something you know like it really became some of it hard but some of it was and, art rock and it just seemed pretentious and some of it seemed kind of skinheady i mean those people would go too you know like kind of neo-nazi kind of vibe <laughs> violent yeah you know again not so attractive for a young jewish girl from lubbock no but i do remember going to this loft in south boston one night and seeing um i think it was james white and the Blacks. I think it was after the contortions. But, I mean, I saw everybody, like, their first tour. You know, I saw Clash's first tour. I'd Gang like to stop at James, James White and the Blacks. I'm a huge fan of uh, Yeah, of yeah, I saw records. the contortions, was, James White and the Blacks at this loft in South was, was Boston. Was that crazy? What? Was that crazy? It was just cool, you know. And I, I don't think it was crazy. He's Yeah, he. I mean, he put a lot of energy into it. Yeah. But, you know, another funny thing connected to that is, um, you know, like, it's been a while now. I guess it was like 14 years ago in Philly, uh, you know, is at Tritone and this woman came up and she's, you know, I think Jay Schwartz and Sarah Scher were spinning records. And this woman came up, she said, I was talking to the DJ and she said, I should talk to you because you used to live in Boston and I lived in Boston and, you know, I went to punk shows and um, her name's Laurel and she was on, she was going to Emerson and was like a DJ on the Emerson station, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And we were at like, and we're friends now, but we were at like all the same shows in Boston during that time. Well, there was also the Paradise, you know, all the bands that were signed to labels like Talking Heads and Television and Blondie and Devo and The Jam and, you know, saw everybody. Wow. Yeah. That's why when they come back now, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't mean that much now. Yeah, know? it's interesting. I mean, it, it kind of when you see these reformed punk bands, it seems like they always are about a half step sort of slower or something. Like you really sense like the energy level not quite, you know, where uh -huh. it used to be off the, uh, with some of those reformations. Maybe. It just, I don't know. It just doesn't mean what it meant then. You can't recapture that, you know. But it's funny because, you know, I go to South by Southwest, which is a music conference. You know, we've been like 15, 16 times, so I'm not going this year because I hate it now. 
but it used Why, to be great. Um, but sometimes I'll see, like a couple of years ago, I saw um, the animals. Eric Burden. Eric Burden was so good. And he did these like more obscure animal songs. Like he sounded great. I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. It was great. It wasn't. It wasn't trying to be an oldie show or anything, but he just sounded really good. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I've seen Sam the Sham there, and and, they, and it was all the same guys, and that was the good. original Pharaohs. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those guys, like somebody like Eric Burden, has been on stage for so many years. Like he sensed this great comfort that they really have, like that they're in their element up there, you know. But some people, their voices haven't held up. Yeah, yeah, you know, because as you age, things can happen. And but he sounded good. So much of rock and roll is really theater too, and uh, you know the the theater of it changes uh, a lot. You know, between being you know in your twenties and being in your your sixties or whatever. Well, that's another whole thing. Because I realized, like, at some point, you know, I was watching this band and I was thinking, like, oh, they're really cute. And then, you know, I was like, I'm like some old man at, like, a Britney Spears concert. Like, you know, like, (laughs) like, like these guys are in their 20s in their tight jeans, you know, and I'm 100 years old. But then I had this other experience where I was um, I was at the World Cafe and Jonathan Wilson was playing. I don't know if you know him, but he's this uh, sort of hot producer in uh, Laurel Canyon. Mm. Um, and he has two albums out and they're kind of psychedelic. It's really great. I, I, he, I like it. Um, so they were playing and... It, it was like Laurel Canyon, 1972. You know, he's got, everyone had long hair and these tight pants that were like flares, like real bell bottoms and tie-dye and low-cut shirt necklaces and, you know, in this music. And, and I was like, because it, um, it was 2012. And I was like, this is 1972. And I'm watching this band, and it sounds like 1972. It looks like 1972. I was doing the exact same thing in 1972, and I'm like, 40 years have passed, and I haven't progressed at all. Like, everything sounds the same, looks the same. I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, you know, like, you kind of forget that, you know, oh, I'm old, and they're young, and, you know, and then I start to think, like, what do the other audience people think when they see me? Like, oh, you know, someone's mother is here. Like, <laughs> it was always nice to have you know some hip people that were a little older at the show, though. I think I always appreciated that. <laughs> but I lived in San Francisco, and you go out to shows, and like everybody's under thirty and stuff. It's, really? Yeah, I used to see know. Austin. The old people go out.
you said that South by Southwest, uh, you're not enjoying the way you, you, once, you once might have. Well, it's changed. What's, what's changed about it? Um, it, it just, um, it, there's way, way, way too many people there. And um, what happened was first, they started having this interactive conference. You know, they have like the interactive conference and the film conference and the music conference. And the interactive conference has become their biggest thing. So it's the whole culture of, you know, computers and digital whatever and social media. And, you know, so for a while, there's really been a lot of money in that world and they have a lot of promotions and there's, you know, these gazillionaire people and they'll stay for the whole thing and then they'll they'll book the whole hotel and then, Everything costs too much. And then these other organizations started kind of having their own festivals there during the same time because there's so many people there. So there's the Fader Fort. And then in East Austin over the weekend, there's some kind of festivals. So there's such a glut of people and every all the prices have been jacked up and you can't get in anything you can't get anywhere like it's so it's just so difficult and frustrating and too many people so I just like really am not up for dealing with it anymore is there any competition for the South by Southwest festival is there other any other festival well like there's that? different I mean like the Americana festival people have been going to that but that's just all kind of alt country and stuff i mean i've had so many great times at south by southwest like for me it's kind of like you know how they have those rock and roll fantasy camps like it's kind of like rock and roll fan fantasy camp you know (laughs) like like one day you know it's just like in this barbecue restaurant getting lunch with this friend and then he saw someone he knew and we went and sat with them and i look over and i'm like having lunch with booker t yeah you know, or like Iggy and the Stooges are being interviewed, you know, um, at the convention center. I'm just in the front row and like Iggy's right there, you know, picking his toes because he had flip flops on. And then he picked like a toenail or piece of skin and threw it on the stage. And so I, you know, went looking for it after to clone it. And, you know, you just it's just like you have all these fun experiences with various musicians and, you know, going for barbecue with Ian McLaughlin, you know, last year, though he's my buddy. I mean, I got to know him. Yeah, I was going to bring him up because I, I know that yeah. you were, you were was you know, he living he lived in Austin. He lived in Austin, okay. What? I was going to ask if he lived in Austin. I, he I was. was. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he died. Yeah, I know. Um, but what, what I... He, what was he like? What was that? When did you meet him? I, well, I met him... You know, because he had a band down there and I went to see them in the, you know, during South by Southwest, but this was at least 12 years ago. And uh, I was like, oh my God, is it like Ian McLaughlin, you know, small faces. And so the very first time, like, I kissed a boy, Ichiku Park was playing, which is a small faces song. So I got to go tell him that, you know, after, though I later found out after I got to know him well, he didn't really like that song. And, <laughs> That wasn't his song. And he was much more into kind of the bluesy songs, I think. And um, so he was always, his band was always playing down there. And then when they would come to Philly, you know, 
like we would, I would take them around Philly sometimes to, you know, bars and things. And uh, we had him on Fresh Air once. And um, he, you know, he, like after he died and you would just see things people wrote about him on Facebook, everyone loved him. Everywhere he went, he was like that to everyone. Like you were immediately his good friend and he would go out drinking with you and, you know, hang out and talk to people and he was just like that all over the world um and uh yeah so I mean I had like several really you know fun evenings with him and a bunch of us went to get barbecue out in Lockhart last year during South by Southwest so it's not all bad but they he and his band would play like this free kind of uh 6 p.m to 8 p.m sort of happy hour thing at the Lucky Lounge every Thursday. So whenever I was in Austin, you know, I'd always go see them and no more. Mm, sad to hear. Yeah. Who was in his band? There must have been other people. Like oh, that. yeah. Well, that, I mean, you really, I mean, that was great too because um, first it was like this guy, uh, Don, he kind of helped him get stuff organized and sort of playing out in Austin and... Um, so when I first started going to see them, um, this guy Mark Andes was the bass player. And um, Mark Andes is like legendary because he was in Spirit. And uh, then he was in Heart. He was in Firefall, which... Ugh. And uh, he was this like kind of beautiful man, like a really great bass player. So, you know, he was his bass player for a while and then Scrappy Judd Newcomb is his guitar player and he's just this really great Austin guitar player um so it was a good band yeah do you have any Ian McLaughlin stories to tell or nothing I mean we just go out drinking you know <laughs> this is you know like Here's like Amy at like 12, 13, 14 in Lubbock, just totally isolated from the world, feeling alienated from the people in Texas, like listening to her British invasion rock. And then like I get to, you know, become sort of friends with one of these people. Can I tell I have another story like that? So see it was in 2008 so it was like six and a half years ago I went to England with a couple of friends just for a fun trip so as part of it we went to Liverpool and um yeah the great museum there but you know we were looking at this tourist brochure and it's like oh the uh Casbah Coffee Club you know you can have a tour and and there was a number and we called and they were like well it's not open anymore and the Casbah being where the Beatles played right so this First place they ever played. Place. So we said, well, it says we could get a tour. And this guy's like, okay, you know, you can come. I'll give you a tour. And uh, we got the address. And so it's it's like just outside of the center of Liverpool. I think it's considered a suburb, this residential street. And, you know, we take a cab and we get out. And it just says Casbah Coffee Club and go around back. We knock on the door and this guy opens the door and it's uh, Rory Best. It's Pete Best's brother. And Pete they, Best, the drummer, original Pete drummer for the Beatles. Pete Best was the original drummer of the Beatles, and his family still owns this house. This woman, Mona Best, she had this family, and she bought this house, and she actually won the money to buy the house by betting on a horse, and she got the money, she bought the house. 
and it was a big house. And then she saw these kids hanging out in the streets on the weekends. So she said, I'm going to open a coffee club in the basement so the kids won't hang out on the street. They're underage kids who couldn't go to bars. So she opens this coffee club. And then she knew this young woman who knew George Harrison. And so this young woman's like, well, I think my friend's band could play. And, uh, you know, for the opening night. And, you know, they came in and then they helped her paint and everything, get it ready. And then uh, George's band wouldn't play, but George had just met John and Paul and they had been talking about playing. So he got them to play. So it was in 1959 at the Casbah Coffee Club, and they have a, a photograph in the alcove, in the little alcove where they first played. Like, I have a picture of that. And it's the first time they ever performed together in public. And then they became the regular band. And then it was... Um, so then Pete Best had a drum kit. Like, he didn't really know how to play, but they let him be the drummer because they needed a drummer. <laughs> And it's such an important part of the history of the Beatles. And so, and it's exactly kept the way it was then. It's got this cool mural that Cynthia, John's girlfriend, had painted. And, you know, and so Pete Best Brother is showing us around. And the Pete Best Band, they travel all year, like playing Beatles festivals. Like he's got this huge career playing Beatles festivals. And so, you know, I just loved it. We were there for hours. So then uh, a few months after we got back, the Pete Best Band was going to be playing in New York City. Oh, what's the name of that club? Chris Noth used to own it downtown. I can't remember. Anyway, it's this little club. So, you know, my friends who I'd gone to England, we went and they were all, you know, no, they weren't awful, but it was stupid. You know, like they just played Beatles songs and British Invasion songs. It was kind of an oldies act. But there were two drummers. I'm like, I guess Pete Best is really a bad drummer because he has another drummer. So after the show, you know, I was talking to the other drummer. So it turns out it's Pete's other brother, Rogue. And Pete Best is kind of a pill. He's kind of sour, but Rogue was really nice. And then... They wanted to go out and smoke cigarettes. And like my friend and I, we went in their van and we were smoking. And then I was like, this is so crazy. Like I was so, if it was six years ago, I'm like, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. And like, you know, the little like 12 year old Beatle fan me like could imagine that like 40 years later, you know, I'd be like, in a van in the village like smoking with Pete Best brother like the whole thing was so absurd yeah it's funny I mean I've seen a handful of interviews with Peter with Pete Best and I've, I've never seen him seem anything less than a, a little bitter and, and disappointed <laughs> yeah, I, guess, I guess he earned it yeah I mean you, you did miss the you know one of the greatest rides of the 20th century <laughs> <laughs> I bet you he wouldn't appreciate your love of Ringo and and uh, he was considered to be the best looking one. Not a bad looking guy. He's a young man. Ringo though is a top flight drummer. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of him as a drummer. Uh -huh. uh, when you listen to uh, 
the sessions of the Beatles hammering out those songs, it always seems like Ringo's the one who's figured out how to do the mm. supportive drum arrangement under the whole thing first. Like, he right. really seems like he grounds it. You know, the one thing I remember about Ringo when we had him on Fresh Air, um, which was a long time ago, was he had pleurisy and had to be in a sanitarium and would knit, would crochet um, pot holders. <laughs> <laughs> had to keep doing something with his hands, I guess. That was <laughs> my Ringo fact yeah. for the day. Say what you want about the man, but he made a great pot holder. <laughs> Just think of what those would go for on eBay <laughs> if somebody had one of those. Fresh Air, when uh, when you first started, was a two-hour show? It was a two-hour local show. I remember when it was, it seemed like it was an hour single well, guest interview. Well, what happened was, what? It yeah. used to be an hour single guest interview. That's what I... The, well, when she first started doing it, it was three hours. And then at some point, it became two hours live. And, and then they started taking one interview, editing it into a half hour, and then sort of sending that out to whatever stations wanted to run it. So they had started, you know, distributing this one half hour interview a week. Wouldn't that be 88 or so? Well, that's when I, see, I started there in 85, and they had started doing that shortly before that. So when I started, it was a two-hour local show, and there was this half hour interview. And then, two, so two years after that, in 87, is when we started the hour-long national show. Mm-hmm. And that became more of a magazine show, kind of. A uh... little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Little, yeah. But now, you know, then it's, it's changed because now, you know, almost every show is one interview and, a, you know, maybe a review. Like, we, the interviews have just been running longer yeah. than they were first when it went national but yeah so that i mean that show really uh brought almost everybody to your front door or at least uh, to the isdn line right yeah i know (laughs) there's so few people we get to meet but yeah i mean if you think like who who does she really want to interview like she's probably interviewed them yeah like who can you think of i mean you know i didn't bobby gentry she doesn't want to. I know. Bobby Gentry's a bit of a... Um, a but, I mean, Woody story. Allen. Woody Allen. Nancy I mean, Reagan. Nancy Reagan. James Brown. Aretha Franklin. She was really boring. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Don't <laughs> oh, be anything negative. Um, you know, out of famous people, I don't know because, gosh, we've gotten everybody, haven't we? Seems it. Yeah. It's crazy. Ray Charles, Bruce Springsteen. I don't know. Was there anybody who particularly impressed you that that, that did come through the door? The RZA. The RZA. Oh my from God! Wu-Tang. I love the RZA from Wu Tang. 
Man, that guy. Oh, he's his mind is like expansive. And was the Rizzo the one who's very into science, or is that the Giza? No, he's into like like uh, uh, what the kung fu movie, science fiction, because he has like these different identities and. He's and he's does movies. He's he's got like an acting career and did has done some music for Jim Jarmusch films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he was one of the great. I loved so. him. Yeah, <laughs> he was one who was really good. So uh, what is, what is your day? Uh, how do you set up? <laughs> oh no! You the, really want to do this? Well, I don't know. Do you want to talk about it or no? I mean, I'm. Uh, is it just talking to publicists and setting no, up hours? Not now. Or, no. No. Like, okay, like the thing we recorded today, it's on tomorrow. Yeah. This is a good example. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm supposed to set up interviews connected to issues, but, you know, I don't set it up that day and we record it and it's on the next day. So the whole timeliness aspect, I can't meet those you know types of demands um but you know this whole the you know killings in france at charlie hebdo you know for the cartoon depictions of muhammad happened and so you know here's my dilemma i want to do something connected to that you know but that happened a week ago and the interview isn't going to be on until this thursday and then during that week every media outlet has just like talked it to death and you know just i don't want to just add more noise or have the same people on and so and it's got to be someone who can talk really well and you know who's really expert and what they have to say like it's really challenging there're just so many forces working against me it's got to be really fair journalistically and so uh so for this week uh what i came up with um, this guy, he's British. His name's Majid Nawaz. And um, he used to be uh, an Islamist. And he was in this group in England, uh, you know, that, that was out of like Finsbury uh, Mosque. Like, I think Omar Bakri might have recruited him, you know, one of these, you know, Islamist guys. And so. I guess it was in the late 90s that this guy became an Islamist. He was 16, and he was really actively recruiting people to, you know, join them in creating a caliphate, you know. And uh, then he was studying in Egypt, and he ended up in prison there for four years. And um, (laughs) he was so great in this interview. It's going to be on tomorrow. While he was in prison, he kind of, moved away from wanting to be an Islamist and he said he read a lot he said like where he was in prison that it was like a who's who of the jihadist scene in Egypt so you know it was head of the Muslim Brotherhood and the guy who killed Anwar Sadat and uh, the head of his group his his Tahrir and and there were the gay Egyptians and Muslims who converted to Christianity and you know it was just like such an odd group of people, but 
he said like he was he was reading a lot and he was reading Animal Farm and he just started you know he got really into what Orwell was saying and then he saw that this group like as he got to know kind of their daily habits and lifestyles he was like if these are the guys who are going to be creating the caliphate like I don't have anything to do with it and they're like the villains in Animal Farm, you know, like they're doing the same thing, but it's about they use God and, you know, and he just kind of became very disillusioned um, by reading Animal Farm in an Egyptian prison. Um, and so now he has this group where they, you know, try to de-radicalize Muslims and to try to create like a... a you know, a form of Islam in England that is supportive of human rights and freedom of speech and stuff like that. So, um, you know, he was very interesting. So that's kind of what I do. I've just like got to come up with something that's relevant, that's like not the same thing and will still be timely a week later. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot. I was listening to Jeremy Scahill talk this week and he was talking oh. about... Uh, yeah, the, the the man behind the the, the film Dirty Wars and uh, uh, journalist, but he was talking about the jihadists he'd met in, in Yemen, and he compared them uh, something I hadn't heard anybody do before. He, he compared them to like school shooters in the United States. He said, you know, these guys, there's always something that went a little wrong in their life, and they were in a place in society where there was nothing really to catch them except for these. Men and and you know who had plans for them as, as jihadists or whatever, but that psychological profile really rang a bell and sort of made sense to me. Well, these you know the Kawachis were both orphans, and then this woman you know who was Kulabali's wife, who I guess like ran off to Syria. She was an orphan. Yeah. You know, but like this guy, the guy that we have on, he was from a very middle class family. His father was an engineer. You know, that was one of the things they talked about. Like he didn't come from this background that's supposed to breed, yeah. you know, radicalism. But I guess everybody can find an avenue to get alienated by. Right. And know. then they play different roles, too. Yeah. You know, because he said like Bin Laden, you know, his father was wealthy and he was an engineer. And Zawahiri is a... Uh, you know, doctor from a very prominent Egyptian family, but they're the leaders. They're not getting their hands dirty. They're not the the yeah. gunmen, you know. But um, yeah, Jeremy Scahill, I I set him up a couple times, and uh, one, you know, the last time I set him up, he's so good, and it was about Yemen and Somalia, and you know the dirty war it was before the book came out um and he was just had he would like chew hot with these people you know which is a kind of a drug that yeah, they have there you know and and just hang out with like all these guys so he gets to know them you know in a yeah it's, in a it's different weird. way maybe that's enough wrapping things up i, I would like to talk about uh about uh, musically what you're listening to now what what uh okay um what what uh, what what's the last uh, do you have a turntable still um what do you listen to music on you're gonna not run the show if we talk about the turntable 
What's that mean? You sold your turntable? Is that it? Well, so, uh, you know, I used to, when I lived in Boston, you know, I would like this boyfriend who sold my imported Beatles album. We'd get up early, like go to flea markets, garage sales, whatever, and like look for the most obscure albums that you could, you know, get them for 50 cents or a dollar, you know like a lot of great stuff, everything, you know, we're really into very like obscure music and stuff. And so a while ago, like at least 10 years ago, like my last turntable bit the dust and, you know, wasn't really listening to vinyl or anything. And then I just have too much stuff in my living space and it's always a mess. And so then I was like, I've just got to get rid of stuff and I'm going to get rid of all these books because I'd been getting free books from work for decades decades and CDs and you know I just have to get rid of all this stuff and everything's getting digital anyway and so for my 60th birthday which was a Wednesday um, which was good because Thursday's trash day <laughs> I invited people to come over and they had to bring boxes and I gave my stuff away that's very zen. It's very commendable. It's not the path I'm on, I but chose, it's very commendable. I mean, I filled the middle room, and then people could just... But I I kept a few albums, but some of them just because I like the artwork on the covers. Um, and, and when I run into people like you who are really into music and like, you know, as a very important artifact of cultural history and it still you know like those things had so much meaning because they were really you know underground and obscure and no one knew their value except us and we'd get them for a dollar and it was a big you know it was like treasure hunt and you know but I kind of let go of all of that now when I run into people like you I'm very embarrassed that um just gave away like some things that were treasures, but, you know, it was 40 years ago. I, I should have been given first crack. I will admit that. But uh, uh, but I do reckon, I, I do, uh, I appreciate the, uh, you know, I, I, on the other hand, you know, live with a, a certain amount of clutter that I, you know, have mixed feelings <laughs> about. I do, I kind of feel like my old research is everywhere in some ways. Right, right, um, right, you know. But it's all on the internet now, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I almost gave away my Shags album, and then I'm just like, no. <laughs> I, uh, there was a customer who used to come into the record store where I used to work. Did you we, work at Jack's? I didn't work at Jack's. I was very friendly with uh, the staff over at Jack's, with Roy and Wayne. Well, I w- because once when San I was Francisco, in San Francisco, yeah. and I had told this guy I was seen at the time that... I said, what do you want? He said, a Roy Loney t-shirt. And so I went in and I was like, is Roy here today? And I kept going back until he was working. And then I was like, I told my friend I'm bringing him a Roy Loney t-shirt. And he was like, well, I don't, you know, like I might have some in a box at home or something. (laughs) Roy, Roy's a sweet guy. Um, But when I worked in the record store and we were all obsessed record collectors there, there was a customer who came in, we held in a certain esteem uh, named Russell who um, he was, like us, was, was uh, you know, guilty of the collecting bug, uh, stricken with the collecting bug. And uh, he had gotten past that. And he first it was 100, and then it was down to 50. And he only had 50 CDs at that point in, in his house. 
and he would come and uh, buy some great jazz CD we all love, but then he would come and return it like a week later and get extended credit and would say like, you know, Hank Mobley Soul Station, this isn't a great record. And I'd say, well, it's not one of the 50. Wow. And that was a Zen mindset I could appreciate, even though it was huh. very far from where I was at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're not listening to records now, you must still listen to music. What, what music well, are you listening to? This isn't... Well, yeah. Um, I, I still go to shows, um, and I used to go a lot more. I'm getting a little tired of it, and it's such a big part of my social life. I'm having a bit of a difficult transition you know because I'm really kind of tired of going to clubs late and ruining my ears and standing there and and a great show is a great show but most of them aren't um but I like I mean I really like I like Radiohead and Spoon and have you heard the new Sleater Kinney God, I haven't even listened to it. This is a bad... Okay, so there's so much music out there and I get, like, everything free and, you know, I'm supposed to listen to things to see if we want to do something on the show. And I'm so overwhelmed by all of it that I'm kind of turning against it, you know? And just like that, you know? Like, I don't know. I You know, I liked them in the 90s. I saw them at Dobbs. You know? <laughs> but I don't know. Do I care now? Like, what, what, what is your perception of where, where the music scene is in 2015? I mean, you've, you've, you're making the face like, how would you know? But if there's anybody yeah, who's really in the hot I'm center not... of it, you're pretty in the hot center of music culture for the last 50 years. I don't know what to say. I, I, I think there's a lot of really good music. People that say, oh, all the good music was in the 60s. <laughs> like, that's the stupidest. Like, how dare you even say that when you don't even listen to anything? <laughs> it's it's such a stupid statement. Um, Everything out of my purview stinks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, things that I don't know about. They're not worth knowing about. Um, but it's it's really different because there's so much stuff... And because of the internet, it's like you have to figure out how you're going to find out about stuff and what you're going to spend your precious time getting to know. You know, because somehow, you know, I used to listen to things over and over again. Like, I know all the words. Like, I was so familiar with the sequencing. Like... You know, there's always so much new stuff coming in. Like, when do you find the time to really live with an album? And so everything is like, oh, I like that. And then I forget it. And then there's something new. And I'm personally just not happy with that. And then I often, I don't really get an album until I see the band live a lot of times. Like, that will just really illuminate, like, what's going on about the band for me you started to say something uh, i was gonna say i almost feel i remember 15 years ago maybe uh, them saying that the record industry was going to collapse or it was in the you know on the precipice of a collapse and uh, and that was going to change music and it was really hard for me to think 
you know, like a, like a fish who can't discover water. It was hard for me to think what that was going to mean. No record companies, or you know, and, and as, as sales have really halved in in the past decade, um, I feel like that sort of like hype and momentum that bands got that made a band want to be a band that everybody listened to. Like they they don't they're not that. I don't know if they can really develop that hype the way they used to outside of the real sort of like major multi blockbuster bands. And yet. And yet, there are the bands that rise to a certain level, like the bands that play Union Transfer, or the bands that play The Tower, or the bands that play The Man. You know, they're not Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift, but, you know, they are like, well, Neutral Milk Hotel is back, so they're not new, but um, X-Hex or... uh, Give me some names. <laughs> like, uh, I'm sorry, I just Arcade have... Fire. Arcade Fire. Well, they're really big now, but uh-huh. yeah, when they were starting out. Um... Yeah, it's but but to, to trying to lasso the cultural moment, it just seems mm. almost harder but than I ever. But I think part of it is just the diversity of sound, you know, and drawing. I mean, there's a lot of bands that you know really draw from a kind of Burt Bacharach arrangements and flugelhorns and you know it's a lot of that and then there's a lot of bands that have like cellos and you know it it's uh at this point I feel like any sort of musical bug that you need itched there's somebody out there that is working that that sliver of sound (laughs) or something but just as a listener I think it takes a lot of time and work to find your music and then you know, and because you spent so much time finding it, you don't have time to listen to it. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Amy. Thank you so oh, much for having okay? a conversation. I mean, I just kind of blabbed off. Very good. Was that okay? It's wonderful. I just I think, blabbed. Yes. No, no, no one's gonna care. <laughs> if I know my audience. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Five. <laughs> That's this week's show. Thanks so much to Amy for coming on. It was great fun talking. You can hear her Invisible Handiwork five times a week on Fresh Air. You can hear more Fun to Know conversations at soundcloud.com backslash fun to know with the numeral two. You can like the show page at Facebook at Fun to Know Podcast. You can hear me spin jazz weekly at 11 a.m. Mondays on WPRB Princeton. You can read my writing on film at Falker.com, P-H-A-W-K-E-R. And here's hoping you come back soon for more fun to know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.